You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Stop the world, I want to get off. Yes, Virginia, the emperor has no clothes. Yes, Virginia, facts are facts. What happens when just one thread in the American tapestry is mutated or changed? Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, novelist, historian, and journalist Kevin Baker will stop by in the second half. Well, we start with Peter Blauner. Peter is the author of eight novels, including Slow Motion Riot, the winner of an Edgar Award. He began his career as a journalist in New York Magazine in the 1980s. He has been a TV staff writer for Law & Order, SVU, SVU, excuse me, SVU, and Blue Bloods. Peter, welcome. Thanks for having me back, Larry. But usually when we talk, it's about your writing career. Let's talk about TV. What brought you to television? Um, really, my novel writing career, I had a couple of uh, long-term projects that I knew would take me uh, quite a few years to complete. And in fact, one of them is still is not complete. And I knew I needed to supplement my income in the meantime. Also, having the opportunity to work around other people, um, other writers, actors, directors, to see uh, the process of a production being put together and not having to move to Los Angeles uh, to do it. Those were very uh, appealing ideas to me. What fascinates me about what you do, what we see on television is just a small part of the process. Yeah. Take us inside the writer's room. I think about the great stories coming out of Sid Caesar's program inside the writer's room. I love Larry Sanders on television. They take you inside the writer's room as a comedy. What is it like inside the writer's room? Well, there are different versions of it. I've um, worked on shows where there are six or seven or eight people uh, in a room at the same time. And then I've worked on shows where it's just me and the showrunner um, putting together a story. And the way I kind of look at it is there's what I do when I write books and that's just me. And if you don't like it, there's no one else to hold responsible. And if you do like it, well, thank you very much. But when you're working on a TV show, uh, unless you're uh, a David Chase or a David Simon or, or uh, somebody like that, where it's really your vision and everybody is working to realize it, other than that, you're just a, a worker among workers, um, and you're just a cog in a bigger machine, and uh, you're very lucky uh, and fortunate to have a job and uh, to be working with professionals and uh, to be part of that process, but you should not make the mistake of thinking that you're more important than any of those people. Uh, so a certain amount of humility is uh, appropriate to that. And if the show has been running for a number of years before you've arrived, your disappearance is not going to make a great deal of difference to the audience either. So there's a certain Venn diagram between what you normally do in your own writing and uh, what the show does. And if you can operate in that space for a while, then you're a lucky man or a woman. Um, and, and you have to accept that role. Are there ground rules? I think about your network television. Also, there's a lot of programs coming up on the cable networks, premium sure. cable networks. Are there different ground rules in terms of what you write for networks 
as opposed to what you write in terms of the premium channels where the dialogue may be different, language may be different, and different latitudes in terms of what they're trying to do for their narratives. Uh, true, and also different latitudes with uh, the characters and uh, with um, shades of moral ambiguity uh, in the characters. Um, there was a time about 15 years ago that I think the broadcast networks were trying to compete with um, the Sopranos of the world or the, the uh, programs like The Wire or, or even Mad Men. And I saw very, very few shows uh, in broadcast medium that were comfortable operating in that space. Um, the audience for uh, a lot of those procedural shows know what they want, and they're, they're comforted uh, by uh, uh, certain uh, conceits um, being observed week after week. Um, that's not so much the case with the edgier uh, cable shows where you can afford to kill off a main character or, or have a main character do something that does not seem like it's within the moral framework uh, or um, have uh, someone who seemed like a minor character step, step to center stage and take over for an episode or two. Uh, and uh, there's advantages and disadvantages to both. With the uh, network shows, you have an audience in the millions. Uh, otherwise, it won't be on the air for very long. You can afford to have a much smaller audience, especially within the streaming world these days. But uh, then again, <laughs> a lot of uh, television has to be subsidized by uh, the idea that a lot of people are watching. And if they're not, well, what are you doing on the air? You're listening to this podcast, Arthur Periscope. My guest is Peter Blauner. In terms of the history of television, were there antecedents to the type of programs you write for? I think of Dragnet. I think of NYPD Blue. I guess I come up with a whole bunch of uh, programs. But what came before the programs that you worked on in terms of the antecedents of television history? Well, I think there were always courtroom dramas uh, going back to Perry Mason and uh, beyond, and probably uh, going back to radio uh, uh, formats that uh, introduced the idea of crime, investigation, and resolution. Uh, and I, I, I would guess there were a lot of stage dramas that uh, operated within those conventions. And uh, uh, obviously, the, the Sherlock Holmes stories and the conventional mystery stories of the page uh, serve some of those functions as well. Um, I, I think that there's something a little bit different that goes on with television because you have actors and you observe them from week to week. And in the case of at least two of the shows that I've worked on, the audience forms a very intense emotional relationship with the characters played by Tom Selleck on Blue Bloods and uh, by Mariska Hargaday on Law and Order SBU. And um, I've seen that actually just being out on the street with those people. I've seen the way the audience comes out and, and I see people's emotional reactions face to face uh, with those people. And um, at least with Law and Order SBU, I think I had a little inkling that um, the Me Too movement was coming years before uh, the Harvey Weinstein revelations, ju just from seeing 
the sheer emotional reaction of, of women across racial lines, across age lines, across class lines, all talking about their individual experiences of, of uh, being sexually harassed and sexually uh, assaulted and, and really talking to Mariska as if she was the character uh, that she was playing. Um, and, and that uh, she actually was giving people a forum to talk about these things. I mean, obviously there was a boiling under uh, going on throughout the rest of society that uh, we've all seen uh, come out in public in the years since then. But uh, it, was, it was an interesting view, Periscope. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I want to share, because usually when we had these conversations with various programs, we talk about the books you have written. I want to share a Newsday review about your latest book, Sunrise Highway. Yeah. And this is what Newsday wrote. What James Elroy did to L.A. in L.A. Confidential, Peter Bonner does it to Long Island. His new thriller, Sunrise Highway, sequel to Proving Grounds. They go on to say Bonner's work in Sunrise Highway is a master class in how to write a thriller. What is your reaction to that? That's not a blurb. That's a newspaper review. There's a difference in my mind between a blurb and the jacket of a book and newspaper review. Your reaction? Well, I'm not exactly going to take issue with that, uh, am I? Now, that, that was very, very nice. And I was glad uh, to see um, the reviewer take it so seriously. And and also to see that my, my intention, at least, was that this wasn't just um, a thriller or a serial killer story, but uh, supposed to be uh, a, a social novel in some way, and uh, cutting across a, a broader cross-section, which Kevin does very, very well in his the books, uh, uh, I, I'd say. Um, and um, just, it's a hard thing to get across to an audience, and certainly not something that you can do in the form of a network television show, uh, especially since even if you have 22 episodes on the network show, there's really not that much of a cumulative social portrait that you're putting together because each episode is self-contained. In a book, you have a, a bigger canvas and the chance to create a more coherent picture. Right. Um, whether you do it or not, is up to the writer. Um, and, and so I feel really glad uh, that it lands at least for one person. Now, I want to mention another writer's name. So it's usually a faux pas to bring another writer or another book into the conversation. But I'm going to mention Michael Connolly because yeah. his Bosch series is now on Amazon Prime. And I think of you. Is there any chance what you do to end up what, kind of like what Michael Connolly's books have become? Because they had Bosch series People are raving about that. But I think Michael Connolly, like you, also has a background as a journalist and a novelist. It's working really well. You understand the writing process. You understand media. You understand television. Have you thought about translating some of your books to a movie or a series? Well, we've, we've worked on it. I mean, the advantage that Michael has, and he's very, very good, is that uh, he's uh, hit on a few uh, characters that he comes back to over and over again, uh, especially Bosch. Uh, and I've kind of burned down the house with the character that I write about pretty much in every book, except for the last two books where I return to the same character two books in a row. That's the first time I've done that. U usually my attitude has been, 
uh, a novel is supposed to be about change in some way. And um, I can only put one character through the changes that justify a novel per book. Um, and so uh, I've written a lot fewer books because of that. I, I feel I have to create a, a world anew with every single book, and that ends up being pretty time-consuming. Um, but but uh, I'm, I'm plugging away, and uh, I'll, hopefully one of these days I'll, I'll get something on the screen uh, that, that uh, started its life on the page. What fascinates me in terms of literature and even TV programs and movies is what I call the great what if. And I'm thinking about a novel called The Man High Castle. Yeah, sure. I'm thinking about uh, the plot against America yeah. and things like that. How much does that interest you just as a person in the world about these great what if questions? Because they make good novels. And I was told that HBO just canceled something called Confederate based on the South winds of Civil War, which I think would be fascinating. It's another great, great what if. There was a, there was a lot of racial controversy uh, around that. Uh, a number of people, including Tana E.C. Coates, protested the very idea that uh, they would even propose such a series, uh, I believe. Um, the, the, the whole realm of speculative fiction, uh, I'm intrigued by. I'm not really sure it's what I do. Maybe, who knows, maybe, maybe I will. Uh, at some point, um, the kinds of books that I write are um, often based on firsthand experiences that I go out and and um, have um, in order to write the book. Um, I'm not sure how to move from um, the here and now to uh, sort of the um, speculative um, and and have it still feel as grounded and real. Um, as it needs to be, or as grounded and real as Roth uh, made the plot against America on the page, which uh, I found to be one of his most compelling books um, and, and, and worked pretty well as a television show, I thought. I was listening to Fresh Air, Terry Gross's podcast. I don't know if you've ever been on that. No. But um, in, the ba- in the back end of the conversation, Zoe Kassan, whose grandfather was very famous and named names during the McCarthy era, asked Terry Gross a question. And she asked Terry Gross, you've interviewed Philip Roth many, many, many times. How would you describe your relationship? And she says, although those conversations were very intimate, I never met him. And the question I wonder about in the context of what we're doing right now, I've interviewed over the years a few times. I can say I know Peter Blauner, but I only know you one way. How do you react to that in terms of the back and forth between an interviewer and an interviewee and how far you can go in terms of eliciting information and keeping a private life separate? Well, I've worked uh, around a lot of actors uh, for the last uh, 12 years. And when I was a journalist, I preferred not to do show business stories, but I um, ended up interviewing uh, a few at the time. And I think any halfway decent actor can convince you that they're a nice person for about an hour or two. I remember years ago, I uh, did an interview um, for a story I was writing uh, for New York Magazine about um, a then little known filmmaker named Oliver Stone. 
And I interviewed one of uh, the young actors who was starring in a film he had that was about to come out. And at the end of the interview, I thought, what a, what a nice young man, what a true gentleman, how, how well-mannered, what a class act. And that was Charlie Sheen. Okay. So really, <laughs> my operating assumption is you never know. And, and, and part of the lessons of growing up in New York City um, and being a writer is you never know uh, that I, you can know somebody for years and years and years and observe somebody for years and years and years and uh, not have any sense of their backstory. And, and the revelation of that and the excavation of that is part of what's really being, uh, what's really exciting about being uh, a novelist. Um, there's someone who I used to see growing up all the time, and I, I don't know if Kevin's ever written about him, but he, he was known as Moondog. He uh, would appear on the streets of New York City, mostly outside the CBS building. Larry, you probably remember him as well, yeah. right? Yeah. And I thought he was just a street freak when I was a kid. He, he would dress up like a Viking. He had a spear. Uh, I believe he had a horned helmet, as I remember him, in the 70s. And I had no idea that he was actually a very serious composer and that he knew uh, Stravinsky and Charlie Parker and Leonard Bernstein. And when uh, David Bowie came to America for the first time, one of the first people he wanted to meet was Moondog. There are people who you meet that run a dry cleaner, it turns out that they were sovereign rulers of third world countries at one point in their life. And and so having the space to really get down and, and, and go through these layers and discover somebody who somebody really is, that's part of the main difference between writing novels and writing for a television show. Have you ever had the experience of somebody comes up to you and said, I read your books and the character that you created is me. Has that ever happened to you? What's happened to me, and this has happened several times, is I've written a book, and then after the book is done, I have met the character. Uh, not only matching biographical details, but in two cases, the exact same name as the character. Uh, the first book I wrote was called Slow Motion Ryan. It's about a probation officer and his relationship with several of his clients, one of whom is named... Daryl King. And shortly after it came out, I got a letter from the Frankfurt Behavioral Modification Center, which is, of course, a prison in Kentucky. And it said, Dear Mr. Blauner, I read your book. I really related to the situation your character was in. Yours truly, Daryl C. King. I thought, well, that's, that's a little odd. Yeah, that's a, all right. And then years later, I, I said to a friend of mine, Hey, I'm, I'm working on a book. Uh, and it's about a guy who's been in prison for 20 years. He goes in when he's 17. He gets out when he's 37. Do you know anybody you can introduce me to who's had a similar experience? He said, yeah, you, you should talk to Daryl King. I said, well, you're confused. You're talking about the character in my first book. He's like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I said, is this guy from Kentucky? He's like, no. And then he introduced me to a completely different person named Daryl King whose biographical details were even closer to the, those of the character in the book. And that's happened to me three or four other times. There's a much more elaborate version of this uh, um, with a character named Nasser, a Palestinian character in a book I called Man of the Hour. 
So, yeah, that actually has happened to me quite a few times. I'm Larry Davidson. This is Artful Periscope. My guest is Peter Brown. Or Peter, we mentioned at the top of the uh, podcast, you won the Edgar Award. What does that mean, and what is the Edgar Award? The Edgar Allan Poe Award is given by uh, the Mystery Writers of America, which is uh, an organization that goes back, I think, to the 1930s, if not the 20s. I, I, I could look that up. Um, and uh, that is, it's an organization that's recognized people who write in the, the fields of uh, suspense, uh, mystery, and uh, uh, thriller uh, writing. And, and the awards themselves, some of them are for uh, best novel, uh, best first novel, which uh, I won the award for, um, best short story, uh, best uh, TV writing. It's an organization that comprises not only writers, but booksellers and editors and agents and, and, and all kinds of people who you would know, and whose names you would know in that field. Uh, belong to it. And, and so to win recognition of any kind from them, even just a, a nomination, um, it's, it's, it's a real honor. Um, it's uh, a distinction and it's something that, uh, you know, I'll be grateful for, for the rest of my life. Peter Blount, this, this podcast is not just in the unique area that we call the metropolitan area in New York City. It's throughout the country and in, in some other countries. I'm going to mention a name because here in New York City metropolitan area, we know he is. He is a gem. Other parts of the country may not know as much about him. Who is Pete Hamill? Uh, Pete Hamill is one of the giants, in my mind, of New York journalism. Um, people around the rest of the country may know him as the author of a memoir, uh, called The Drinking Life, which is a wonderful book, but he's much more than that, um, along with um, his uh, old uh, uh, friend and compatriot, uh, Jimmy Breslin. He exemplified a school of great newspaper writing, uh, specifically great urban newspaper column writing through the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, and uh, beyond. They are both true, authentic voices of working-class New York. Uh, Breslin was from Queens. Uh, Pete is uh, from Brooklyn uh, originally. Um, he uh, uh, is the only person, as far as I know, who is the editor of both the New York Post newspaper and the Daily News uh, newspaper. And for me personally, he was my first boss. I was his assistant uh, when I was... Uh, still in my teens, and he taught me all the most important lessons about writing that I, that I still use as my uh, touchstones uh, decades uh, later, and uh, beyond all that, a real mensch. There are two shows that just ended up on television in their series. One was Homeland, the other was The Plot Against America, which is, I believe, only six episodes. There are people talking about that, and I think it's appropriate to talk about that, how these series were ended. You have an opinion about how Homeland was ended and also how Plot Against America was ended. Uh, I have no opinion about how Homeland was ended because I, I, I didn't see it. I haven't caught up with this season. Uh, Plot Against America ends differently uh, than the way I recall the book ending. Um, 
I think I read that some David Simon actually had a conversation with Roth. That's correct. In which said uh, to Roth, well, the ending that you have in the novel is really not going to work as a TV ending. And Roth paged through the book and said, yep, it's your problem now. And, and that is also uh, a central um, idea that I've tried to carry back and forth between writing uh, books and writing for television, that um, what works in one medium isn't going to work in the other medium necessarily. Uh, Henry James' The Beast in the Jungle is a wonderful novella. I, I don't know if it would work all that well on a screen that uh, the interior, the writerly voice, the uh, um, epiphany that uh, he's been meaningful on the page doesn't read all that well on the screen. However, Robert Mitchum adjusting is uh, fedora just so or the way uh, a gown hangs off uh, Rita Haywood's shoulders well that may be hard to get across on the page a last question i'm going to ask you is a question i asked a friend of yours reed farrell coleman who i think is a gem in your world of crime fiction writing i think a great great writer and we had a conversation about censorship we're talking about american dirt and i also think about the woody allen book out there that also had a shift and go to another publisher because of the outcry in the industry what is your feelings about censorship in general? Maybe those two books, but certainly American Dirt, that's still on the bestseller list, even though her book tour was canceled. Um, I, I've actually given this a lot of thought in Europe. I don't want to bleed into Kevin's time at all. Um, I, I just wrote a, an Kevin essay about this that I published on Medium. Uh, um, I just published an essay about the subject um, on Medium called Someone Else's Skin. And it's a, a multifaceted subject. Um, a lot of the criticism that I read of American Dirt seemed to tread into this territory of suggesting it's a problem for anyone to write outside their own group. Uh, and I, I put group in quotation marks. Um, um, there was much made of the fact that uh, Janine Cummins, yes, the author of the book, um, is is not fully Latina herself, and yet was writing um, what was uh, interpreted as a definitive work about the migrant uh, experience. Um, there's a couple of things about that. Having now read the book, I, I don't think I didn't read it myself as a definitive work uh, about that experience at all. It made me more interested in reading firsthand accounts, but I, I took it as a as a suspenseful novel that uh, dealt with some social issues, and, and for the most part, in my opinion, did it pretty well. All this is kind of taking place against the backdrop of a larger conversation about whether writers from underrepresented groups in the African-American community and uh, the Latina, uh, um, Latino community and the Asian community have been given a fair shot in the mainstream publishing world. And the answer is they haven't. Um, and, and they have been underrepresented. 
uh, and, and more of those voices need to be heard. For me, that's a separate question from whether a uh, Richard Price can write from the point of view of black characters or, or a, a Dennis Lehane or, 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 uh, or Kevin, Kevin wrote a, a wonderful book uh, about, uh, called Strivers Road. I believe yeah. is yeah. a, uh, and, and as a writer, it's in my self-interest, <laughs> obviously, to say, no, I, I, I don't think there should be a velvet rope around a certain part of reality that I, because of how I quote unquote present, shouldn't have access uh, to. I mean, I, I, I spend a lot of time uh, um, with people who've had the authentic experiences that I'm writing about to try to understand them and empathize with them and, and write about them with uh, dimension and, and uh, uh, verisimilitude. Um, so I, I wonder if it is possible to both accept part of this argument uh, that um, the, those groups have been underrepresented and yet feel that sh there should not be restrictions on the imagination of uh, the writer. Um, I, I read a wonderful quote from James Baldwin the other day, and I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I don't have it right in front of me. And it's something uh, to the effect of, you, you think that your heartbreak is unprecedented in history, yet from reading Dickens and Dostoevsky, you realize actually it's what connects you to the rest of humanity. And, and if you can even get a little piece of that as a writer, well, then your time has been well spent. All right, Peter Blanham, thank you for this connection. Thank Look you. Look forward to further conversations in the future. After the break, Kevin Baker, I'm Larry Davidson. You're listening to Artful Periscope. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. My guest is Kevin Baker. Kevin is a novelist, historian, and journalist. He has been writing professionally since the age of 13. At the age of 13, I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> when his mother had to teach him to type, and I never learned how to type, even though I had a Smith Corona, so he keeps <laughs> the job covering sports for the Gloucester Daily Times in Massachusetts. Kevin, is that accurate? Not the Daily Times. <laughs> <laughs> Not the Daily Times. Okay. Um, the, the Gloucester Daily Times. Anyway. Glass, what, did, what did I say? That's a, you said Gloucester. That's how they pronounce it up there. Okay. The All right. You corrected me rightly so. When yeah. we first met, I think it was in 1993 for your novel, Sometimes You See It Coming, based yeah. on Ty Cobb. Yeah. So in today's world, in terms of baseball, what do you think is going to happen? I don't know. It'll be really intriguing. You know, I'd kind of like to see them play, if possible. I know it'll be weird without the uh, the fans there. I know it'll be different, but I'd, I would I would love to see them actually try it. How do you think they'll do it? I mean, right now they're talking about maybe doing it in certain regions of the country. Right. No fans in the stands. Right. So that's going to be very interesting. Yeah, no fans. Um, I guess you'd have to do it. With, what are they saying? Arizona and Florida. That's what they're talking about right now. Leagues. Uh, you would, I guess you'd have to have the families in various hotels. 
um, I don't know, maybe baseball Annie's in another hotel or something. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, uh, yeah, I'd love to see them give it a whirl. And I think it would be good for the sport. You know, I, I think it would get some good publicity for them. I, I kind of hate the stuff they've been doing recently, such as the plan to shut down most of the minor leagues. Right. I think that's that's a terrible idea. Um, and, uh, you know, I just this this would be a good way to kind of get back in the good graces of people. I want to share a story with you and I want to see if you have the same experience. OK. When I was growing up in Long Island, the area that I lived in, everybody had come. The parents had come from Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx and Manhattan. So you had Dodger fans, you right. had Yankee fans and you had New York Giant fans. And one night, all the men took all the kids in the neighborhood to the Bronx to see the Yankees play. It was a night game. First, they took us to an Italian restaurant. And I was oh, really crazy. annoyed because they kept talking and talking and talking. And I missed the first inning. <laughs> Why is the first inning so important? Because that's when Mickey Mantle comes up. And Mickey Mantle, to me, was everything in my world. He of was course. everything. But when I, we finally got to Yankee Stadium, that in that previous iteration of Yankee Stadium, it's changed sometimes yeah. over the years, that it was a night game, and we walked out up the ramps, and we walked to where our seats were, and I saw that green grass, and I saw the immense Yankee Stadium, yeah. and I was a young kid. I have never forgotten that visceral reaction I had. I wonder what kind of reaction you had when you went to see your first baseball game. Oh, very much like that. And by the way, just to say for the importance of the first inning, I was actually once at a game, Yankees and White Sox. The White Sox scored eight runs in the top of the first. The Yankees scored eight runs in the bottom of the first. So you know, I never see maybe 15, 16 years ago this happened. But anyway, uh, yeah, I remember it. It was amazing. Uh, my first game was at the old original Yankee Stadium, the one that looked like a cathedral. Right. Uh, right. Mickey Mantle played. They lost to the Angels four to three. Um, you know, I saw him there, and uh, and then also like that next week, my uncle took me to see the Giants at Shea Stadium. So I got to see Willie Mays, and Willie McCovey in that game, uh, and then like two weeks after that. We moved to Massachusetts, uh, Rockport, Massachusetts, a little town, great place to grow up. But of course, every, I'm a Yankees fan. Everybody is a Red Sox fan. Yeah. This is what I had to put up with from my, uh, you know, my entire childhood until I got back to uh, the New York area. It, it's funny you mention that because my uncle was very good to me throughout the years. My uncle ran the photo lab department at Look Magazine. So after I've done all the sports pictures, that yep. used or didn't use, he gave them to me. Oh. My room was plastered with all sports pictures, but he took me to my first giant game hmm. at the Polo Grounds. No, oh, I wish I had got there. Oh. And, that, and you want to talk about you want to talk about Fenway? Yeah. And the dimensions of Fenway, the Polo Grounds were, was quite unique too. Yeah, a horseshoe, really yes. a horseshoe shape. Yeah. And that's why that, you know, and weird uh, foul lines, I think it was 257 down one line. Yes. You know, hit these like, uh, you know, these just pop fly home runs. Uh, but that's also why Willie Mays could make that Those amazing catches. catch. Because he's so far, you know, it, it looks like you see it and you think, oh, that's a terrific catch. 
but what's so special about it? What's so special about it is he's like like 450 feet from the plate, you know. Yeah. Um, it's an amazing, amazing thing, you know. Um, and the, old yeah, Yankee, the, old, the old Yankee Stadium had Death Valley too, and and the monuments actually the on monument. the field, which is a great bit too. That great picture of Bobby Mercer running amongst the uh, monuments there, um, and then of course Ebbets Field, and uh, that was really the great day. And this is you know this is the the thing. I'm almost finished now um, this book on the history of New York City baseball that I've been writing off and on forever and have had to be interrupted by making a living and family stuff and all kinds of things, but uh, but practically done now. And it's um, it's an amazing story, you know. I want to continue with your permission, a telephone sure. conversation we had sure. recently. And we were talking yeah. about the ending of the plot against America. Yeah. And we touched upon that with Peter Blanner. So right. his input was really interesting, too, because I heard the interviews with Philip Roth. And, and yeah, when he came, when uh, David Simon was with him when he was still alive, and he comes to the end of the book, and he says, Philip Roth, read the end of the book, and I want your reaction and he reads that last part of the book for about 40 seconds. He looks back at David Chase, uh, David Simon and says, now it's your problem. Yeah, yeah. The conversation we were having was about the ending. You were not happy the last 25 minutes of the last episode of the Planet right. America. What was your reaction to well, that? Well, two things. Like One, I, I completely agree that, um, you know, as, as Peter was saying, it's not a book. You know, and I, I, I had the privilege of interviewing Martin Scorsese at one point. And he was saying, you know, he said to me, a book is not a movie, you know, and that's I think that's completely true. Um, and I and I like the fact that they left the election up at the at the end up in the air uh, because of the, um, you know, to, to relate it to today and our whole right. Right. anxiety about this November. And I think that's a good lesson to have. I was a little baffled by the, you know, spoiler alert by the whole fight scene, but I'm told by between the uncle and nephew, but I'm told that's in the book. I didn't like the fact, and again, spoiler alert here, that uh, the nephew in the in the show is involved with British agents, right? In uh, in doing something to, or trying to do something to Lind Lindbergh's plane to kill him, right? Now, right. in reality, I would think the nephew would be totally justified in doing something like that, but in terms of what the movie and the book are saying. And the feeling at that time, the big charge against Jewish people everywhere by Hitler and the fascists and by people like Lindbergh. And Lindbergh was making these speeches all over the country in reality, uh, not as a candidate, but just with America first, was that Jewish people were not essentially loyal to right. America, that they wanted to get us into a war for the sake of Jews in Europe. And that he, you know, he understood this, but... You know, they were not really serving American interests. And that was one of the big things that had to be refuted. And I think when you then put into the show, all of a sudden, well, here's this Jewish guy, uh, you know, working with British agents to bring down a plane. That's that's practically right out of Lindbergh's fantasy mind at the time. You know, like if, I think it's important to show resistance, but right. you could have shown that by having the father and everybody rally uh, the Jewish residents of Newark on their block, you know, that would have been an effective thing of like, we're, you know, making the case for resistance, the case for fighting back. The way that was done, a secret weapon with a British agent, um, that's like all, all too close to what Lindbergh himself, you know, believed. 
and also, you know, a sideline, but it kind of exculpates um, uh, Anne Morrow Lindbergh, who in fact was, uh, uh, wrote some <laughs> pretty anti-Semitic and, and pro-fascist things herself. But, it, but I know that was the, I think that's in the book too, that she had this reputation for being much better than Lindy. So what, what resonates for me, I don't speak for myself, is yes. connections between then and now about what we call the others. The others then were Jew, Jews. Right. The others now throughout history were the Irish, the yeah. Italians. Yeah. Now it's, it's, it could be Hispanics. Now the others are Muslims. So that connection is really interesting. And I think David Simon understood that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, that, you know, and there's a lot of it. And I thought it was a, ver a very hard book to adapt that was done very well overall. And, uh, you know, terrifically done, really built in the tension. He got an essential gut level dread and tension from the book um, and terrific characters and terrific actors, you know, very well done uh, throughout. Um, but there was just like those things that kind of bothered me at the end that I thought of it should have been done more in context of also, it's a little confusing because they're burning the ballot boxes at the end, yeah. you know, that's the sort of thing <laughs> Frank Haig's um, Hudson County machine would do all the time anyway, in reality, but, uh, you know, they well, Mayor Daly in Chicago, you want to yeah. go back to the election between Nixon and Kennedy, Nixon never got over that, how the senior Kennedy kind yeah. of, you know, had input into this, getting his son elected. Yeah. Sort of. That's a that's a very disputed point. But yeah, I, I get your your drip. And so that seemed a little confusing, too. And um, yeah, it was. Uh, but, you know, it was very well done. And it is very. And, you know, I've been I, I did a little work on this um, uh, Ken Burns documentary on America and the Holocaust. That's coming. Right. And, uh, you know, this was talk about alternative history. There were a lot of Americans, a tremendous opposition to going to the war tremendous opposition to having anyone over as refugees. Even when there was, you know, Americans for the most part did not like Hitler, did not like the Nazis, they wanted the British and French to win, uh, but they did not want refugees coming over here during and right after the depression. And even after the war was over, even after you had these horrible films of the camps and you showed exactly what had happened, in public opinion poll after poll, uh, the vast majority of Americans felt, you know, there's going to be another depression. We can't afford this. And they didn't want anyone coming over from Europe, Jewish or non-Jewish. But this is, you know, this is the, the hard reality. We could very easily, with different leaders, Democrat and Republican, we could very easily have stayed out of that war, and which would have been horrible, which would have led to you know, even more, you know, terrible things happening in this in this world. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. My guest is Kevin Baker, journalist, historian, author. I'm going to switch gears a little bit because you wrote a great trilogy, the New York City Fire trilogy, no, Greenland, right. Paradise Alley and Strivers Row. From the first idea to the end of Strivers Row, which uh, Peter Blanner also mentioned. Yeah. How did you develop that concept? What were you trying to do? Well, that, I, you know, I probably should have thought it out more. In the, at first, I was just doing Dreamland, which is set in Coney Island, turn of the century New York, and on the Lower East Side of Manhattan and around the Triangle Fire. 
And, you know, that was uh, kind of a sprawling story. And, but I, you know, I did it. And then I was really thinking I should expand this. So I ended up, it ended up being about three groups who were not wanted in America, except in the most subservient and, um, you know, in the most subservient way, you know, shut up and do do work and, you know, uh, don't have any role in the country, uh, which is to say Jewish Americans, Irish Americans, and African Americans. And so it's set in these three periods, the Civil War and the draft riots in New York City, uh, to this day, the worst riots in our history. Um, the, uh, you know, which involves the Irish American experience, Jewish Americans in New York at the turn of the century, really calling America on its promise, you know, saying that like before that in New York, you know, you could get almost anything as a privilege. Jewish Americans came here and said, we want this as a right. It's promised here in the Constitution, you know, and then African Americans and Harlem and the Harlem riot in 1943 and this horrible way black people have been treated in America. And this was kind of the start of this thing. We're not going to take this anymore. We're fighting this war. We have rights too. So these were really three groups who were so influential in everything about America. You know, so much of our culture, our politics, um, you know, our literature, music, everything, you know, and they were, they just kind of all fought their way into uh, into acceptance in America, into the American consciousness. And of, of course, it's an ongoing fight. We still have so much anti-Semitism. We have so much, still have so much terrible racism. But, um, but it's, an, it's an amazing story to me and a, and a terrible one, a tough one, but, uh, but kind of the best thing about America. Kevin Baker, there are certain movies I'll watch over and over and over again. <laughs> me too, me too. The Godfather trilogy, I don't care. I like Godfather 3, nobody else does. The other movies... <laughs> You're only like, one person. Yeah, I'm the only one probably in America. Yeah, a friend of mine is a director. Yeah. Right, that I like a lot was Gangs of New York starring Daniel Day-Lewis and Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't know if, if you watched, I don't know if you had an opinion about it, but it kind of touches upon the immigrant experience and I think it was really, really violent, but very well done. I, many parts of it, and I, you know, very well acted and beautiful look. I mean, that's as close to the how the real look of uh, pre-Civil War New York, particularly, you'll ever see on a screen. And that was an amazing accomplishment doing that. The the old brewery where everybody's living this horrible deserted brewery, which is at the heart of the Five Points. You know, uh, it it was terrific in in that sense. Um, it, you know, it, it, it probably should have been, it would have been better off as a series because there's this amazing transition from, uh, you know, kind of the anti-Irish feeling and the Irish trying to make their way. And, but of course the draft riot that's at the center of that movie too, is quickly turns into this very anti-black thing and horrible attacks committed against African-Americans on the streets of New York. Um, you know, so, and, and really a thing where the, you know, the, uh, it was kind of the best day of the police in New York history went out and kind of put down this riot, uh, or at least kept it from burning down the whole town by themselves. And then the soldiers come in, many of them Irish American and shoot other Irish Americans in the streets to preserve the union. So it's an amazing story of, uh, 
kind of contesting loyalties uh, and, and the evolution of what America is going to be. And I think in some ways he didn't really have enough time to tell that in, in one movie. I would have loved to have seen the Martin Scorsese, um, you know, uh, 19th century long series about it. Well, he did a great job with Boardwalk. Yeah, yeah there, there were some terrific things in that, too. You know, I never quite bought Steve Buscemi as a boss. <laughs> Steve Buscemi is a great actor, you know, uh, totally terrific. But I just never quite bought him as a as a boss of anything. But uh, but yeah, great look to it. You know, um, some terrific performances there. Uh, another shout out to Pete Hamill. He wrote a book, I believe, called Forever. And that book touches upon a lot of times in the history of New York, which I think is terrific in a novel form. When I read, I want to learn something. Mm-hmm. And I think fiction does that for me. I read more fiction than nonfiction. So I'm going to mention uh, a couple of things I learned in reading your trilogy. And this is really important because not many people know this even existed. Mm -hmm. What was Seneca Village? Oh, Seneca Village is an amazing story. It was um, part of Central Park, what Central Park is today. And Central Park was originally this kind of swampy no man's land. Uh, where there were a number of different villages and privately owned farms. There was a place called um, Pigtown that was a mostly Irish village near where 59th is, near the southern border of the park. And Seneca Village was up around in the low 70s today on the west side of the park. And it was this predominantly African-American village, although there were a large number of whites living there too, um, in, in perfect harmony, uh, had like three churches, a schoolhouse, was this entire community. Uh, trouble was when they came to build uh, Central Park, uh, most of the people there, almost all the people there, didn't have the rights to the land. They were squatting. So they were simply kicked out and, you know, Central Park was built there. Um, and, it, you know, if it's it's impossible to regret the building of Central Park. It's the, the lungs of, of Manhattan. But, uh, you know, there should have been compensation. And the shame is that this interracial community was killed by that, you know. And it was, you know, the five points too. the Irish community down on uh, it's right where the federal courthouses are now, uh, right by the tip of Chinatown. Uh, it, you know, that was a pretty integrated community, too. And one of the many terrible things about the draft riots was that it ended most early integration in New York. And, uh, you know, black people were pushed into these communities that they could defend. Originally in Manhattan, it was around Mineta Lane in the West Village. Uh, and then they were kind of pushed up the island uh, over the next 50 years. Um, but that was a that was a sad legacy of that, too, that uh, that ended a lot of the, the living together. When I was a kid growing up, my mother always used to say, clean your room. And I just say, Ma, and she always to say, make your bed. And I'm saying, Mom, I'm sleeping in, uh, not too, pretty soon later. Don't worry about making the bed. And the reason why I mention that is the other thing I learned in one of your books was uh, something about called the Collier Brothers. The Collier Brothers, yes. So who were they? And why were they infamous and or famous? They were in Strivers Row. My mother said the same thing. <laughs> You'll end up like the Collier Brothers. Uh, they were this pair of uh, brothers who were um, uh, the sons of a very successful and wealthy old money doctor in what's Harlem today, Central Harlem. 
And um, they, uh, after their parents died, they inherited their brownstone. Uh, they were quite brilliant in their ways. One was a lawyer, the other was a pianist. Um, and, but they became more and more eccentric and crazy and, you know, stopped paying the gas bill, stopped paying the electric bill, uh, shut themselves in, wouldn't let anybody else in. Uh, one of them would, went blind. The other one would go out and forage food. But he also built all these, uh, you know, kind of booby traps in the place in case anybody tried to get in. And, you know, it, it was truly sad and insane. You know, like they had a whole room filled with um, uh, leftover Christmas trees. You know, they had a dismantled, partly dismantled uh, Ford in another room. Right. You know, it was just this, you know, they had like something like 10 pianos and just all this other junk building up around it. A lot of it dedicated to trying to kill anyone who tried to come in. And they were, they were known as the ghosty men up in Harlem, which is becoming increasingly black at this point, um, becoming you know, almost totally black at this point. And they would, um, you know, they would just come out from time to time and it would be a story. And then one day nobody had seen them for a long time. And finally the firemen, you know, broke their way in and they found horribly enough that the one who went out had been killed by one of his own booby traps and the other collier had, had uh, starved to death inside the place. So, uh, you know, terrible story, but the city of New York raised the building and turned it into a nice little pocket park called Collier Brothers Park. Well, there you so, go. The, so the moral of the story is if you don't clean your room, you know, the, the city of New York will name a park after you. <laughs> so, you know, but they were, you know, they were part, they were, they were kind of the original hoarders in, in a way that almost all New Yorkers can appreciate. Uh, but, uh, you know, very, very sad, very interesting time at this point when Harlem was, was going through this transition in the, in the thirties and forties. Uh, in 2017, Kevin Baker was a Guggenheim fellow, fellow for nonfiction. What does that mean? Well, for this uh, book I'm writing about, I'm calling it tentatively and somewhat ironically, The Invention of Paradise. But it's about America between the world wars. Um, and uh, it's really, that's really the period where we sort of honed or invented everything about that would become modern America. It's sort of our renaissance. You know, it's the period when, um, you know, almost all of our music came of age. I mean, you know, jazz and blues started being recorded, started being developed. Broadway show came into being. Um, you know, American literature was taken seriously in the world for the first time. Uh, American architecture became, you know, something the world wanted to emulate. Uh, we were far and away, you know, we'd already, we'd been the biggest economy in the world since something like the 1870s, but we were really easily the richest country after World War I. Um, and we developed all that, you can trace almost everything back there, the social welfare state, and kind of modern liberalism. Also the rise of the right wing, the rise of the religious right, which came out of the reaction to the Scopes trial. So uh, there was, you know, all this amazing you know, kind of ferment and turmoil going on. The movies get started. Radio comes, you know, into its own. Uh, this is all, you know, really taking off in this period. It's an, you know, an amazing point. And it leads to 
the U.S. And it's a, you know, it's a very hard time. It's a terrible time. There are still lynchings, including mass lynchings. Uh, but it leads to America starting to fight its way through there. We meet these terrible challenges of the Great Depression and the start of World War II and move into being this sort of the dominant world power. Um, in the time we have left, I'll let, I'll let the listeners know how special you are and how good you've been to me over the years. You've put me in contact with a lot wrong. of people that became, became guests of my programs. One of the people years ago you introduced me to was Melanie, Melanie Thurmstrom. Yeah. I mentioned her because her mother, Abigail, just died. Right, right. She, in, in history of America, not many people know who she is, but she was very controversial. What do you know about her and why was she? in terms of discussions, she changed her views over the years and became a kind of a different person. Well, she, oh, I, I was not aware of that about, about Abigail Thurston. I know, um, uh, and I know Melanie does not share her political views, but, uh, but yeah, I know that the, her parents were very much against affirmative action in colleges and really fought that. And, you know, I, I, find that quite sad. I, I don't know why, if she changed her views, I don't know why she, she did, but um, I think, yeah, affirmative action is one of those things, yeah, maybe not the best way to integrate our, our colleges, but I don't also necessarily think that SAT scores should be the big all, be all and end all of measuring intelligence. You know, um, I think there are many different ways of measuring intelligence. I think people from more privileged high schools get a huge boost up, uh, you know, and I think, you know, I, I remember when I was going to high school, I, I didn't know anybody who took an SAT course. The whole, you know, maybe I just, cause I was in a small town, but the whole idea was, you know, just unknown. Uh, but somehow, but you know, if you can pay money and get better at something and that gets you into a college, that to me right away is an unfair system, you know, never, never mind things like the legacies from, uh, you know, your parents went there or, or that crazy stuff with, uh, you saw in California with the, um, uh, quote unquote athletic scholarships right. for, uh, for people you know, <laughs> who, are, who are faking that, you know, you get into college cause you can be the coxswain on a, on a rowing team. You know, th there's a lot of inequities in all this. And I think, Affirmative action is, you know, is the least of them. And I think that's it's a needed thing. Here's what I want to do. I only have a couple minutes left. Maybe just a quick answer, but it deserves a long answer. But I need a quick answer. Um, can a great book be badly written? Your opinion. Huh. Can a great book be badly written? I don't know. That's very interesting. It's uh, I've known I've known books I've been really intrigued by that weren't well written or well organized more, you know. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting. There's the whole thing of like the big question, too, is we're all writing as well as we can, which I think is generally true with the possible exception of Stephen King. I think he's he's writing so fast that if he were to uh, to stop, think about other topics for a while, he could turn out, you know, literature that would last for the ages. But he, he does pretty, pretty damn well as it is. So. I will leave it at that. Kevin Baker, thank you so much. 
Thanks for having me on, Larry. Great to see you. Stay well. You too. I'm going to end this podcast with the words of Philip Roth, who wrote in American Pastoral. The fact remains that getting people right is not what living is all about. Always, it's getting them wrong, that living is getting them wrong and wrong and wrong. <laughs> then after careful reconsideration, getting them wrong again. That's how we know we're alive, we're wrong. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro. Sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tied you to her kitchen chair She broke your throat and she cut your hair And from